Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. We still don't get paid what I believe we're worth. I had secretly been wanting to try health coaching. Women have been dropping out. Your body is the next frontier of liberation. You have to monetize. We buy into this idea that anyone can do this. Your body becomes proof. Whether or not we're trying to sell a service or a product, all women are brands. Now I'm a health coach. My name is Kyla Tova, and this is Your Body, Your Brand. Episode 10, The Future is Neoliberal Female. You know, I I do have some very, very, very dear friends in the realm of the health world that have been very successful what they're doing. And and I've had conversations with them on, you know, how, how the fuck are you doing this? Because, you know, in my mind, what they're doing and what they're actually doing are two different things, of course. And I have been so fortunate that because we are friends, it, they have made it very clear to me. I'm like, this is what it's really like. And this is what I really do. And this is what it looks like here. But this is where it is. And, and even though it's not super far removed, what they put out there, um, you know, it's almost like in my head as that aspiring person of success I made it out to be like they were you know a castle in the sky with their herds of of unicorns where did we get our ideas of success what does that castle in the sky or the herd of unicorns that Brenda Swan talks about look like as we present them to one another through our personal brands we've touched on this in earlier episodes but when it comes down to it branding yourself in the wellness industry is all about commodification Let's recall something writer Melissa Toller talked about in our first episode. Despite what people say about the health and wellness industry, it's really not about health or wellness. It is about selling stuff (laughs) to help you lose weight. And wellness is not directed... it's, it's only directed towards certain people. It's as if certain people, if you can't afford it, you look a certain way, you don't deserve to be well. So it's, it's, it's very, the whole community to me is very empty and um, manipulative and individualistic. Where did that empty, manipulative, individualistic ethos come from? Well, and here we have to get a little academic and a little political, so we'll try to keep this discussion as fun and interesting as we can without sacrificing the larger message. It all comes down to an economic philosophy called neoliberalism. It's a term that you may have been seeing and hearing used in the mainstream, maybe only fairly recently. But neoliberalism actually has been an undercurrent of most of our lives, certainly my entire life, having been born towards the end of the Reagan presidency. Everything I learned about how the world works, and probably most of what you know about how the world works, stems from the political and economic frameworks that came into being, or at least began to fully manifest themselves around that time. I had the opportunity to speak with Catherine Rottenberg, a professor of American and Canadian studies at the University of Nottingham and author of The Rise of Neoliberal Feminism, about what neoliberalism is and how it functions in our current cultural climate. And neoliberalism is, is a form of reason. So, um, and it's a form of reason that remakes everything in the image of the market. 
So this kind of reason encourages us to perceive ourselves through the lens of a calculative metrics, through a market metrics. Um, it encourages us to organize every social, political, and even affective, emotional aspect of our lives as though we were some kind of Excel spreadsheet. So um, what you have is, so what neoliberal neoliberalism does ultimately in terms of, of society and the social fabric is that it reduces the value of people, it reduces the value of the earth, Earth's resources, and it reduces all other living things um, to categories that are informed by the market, like profitability, like dividends, um, and of course, value appreciation. This is what we're encouraged to do all the time. But neoliberal rationality extends a specific formulation of economic values um, and economic practices and economic metrics to every dimension of human life. Um, and as a result, it, it helps transform us human beings into these kinds of entrepreneurial agents. So we come to think of ourselves as entrepreneurial, as little specks of capital, as constantly needing to be innovative and entrepreneurial um, in all aspects of our life. And we're constantly encouraged to invest in ourselves in order to ensure that we remain competitive and valuable on the market. So um, that's why there is this uh, focus on entrepreneur entrepreneurship, um, on corporate success, um, because neoliberalism is precisely about the reduction of everything, um, and again, even ourselves, into a kind of financialized corporate model. In other words, the reason it seems like a no-brainer to consider ourselves not as people but as personal brands is that neoliberalism, the entire foundation of our current socioeconomic system, considers us in terms of economics. You can't monetize a person, but you can monetize a brand. We're not able to function under this rationality as humans, so we interact instead as human capital. Our language, the language of neoliberalism, makes it impossible to frame ourselves in any other way. Now, it, it wasn't always like this, but things have been trending in that direction since the late 70s, and the rise of social media has only accelerated and heightened this rationality by giving us more tools for solidifying our belief in ourselves and our brands as capital. And this wouldn't be a problem necessarily, except for the fact that capitalism, by its very nature, is inherently unequal. It's about competition, and we don't all get a participation trophy. Since we exist in a patriarchal society, which is also unequal in its apportioning of privilege and resources, when that's coupled with neoliberal capitalism, women identifying people, and especially women identifying people of color, are really hurt by these systems. So when we look at the kinds of jobs that are prized in the capitalist system, like, say, becoming the CEO of your own business, we have to understand, first of all, what we're privileging by prizing that kind of role, and then why we're privileging it. In fact, if you're on the cusp of the Gen X millennial divide and Xennial or older, it may seem a little strange to you that becoming the CEO of your own business is something to prize at all. I was born in 1986, and no one when I was in school was fixated on online entrepreneurship or personal branding. No one had heard the phrase lean in. Women were still expected to have it all and be good, solid workers in the corporate system while also building a home. But being a hashtag lady boss really wasn't in the vocabulary. But then came social media, 
And then things started to change. Brooke Aaron Duffy, the communications professor at Cornell, whom we met in an earlier episode, noticed a similar shift and began to question self-branding's ultimate ability to achieve the goal of empowering women. I finished my undergrad degree in 2002, and being an entrepreneur never came up in my classes. That was not anything my my peers aspired to do. Um, and now, I mean, it's it's so pervasive that all students are encouraged to be entrepreneurs and be the the CEO of you. And, you know, one thing that's important to keep in mind is in a lot of ways I see, um, and I'm not the first to argue this, but, but entrepreneurship is another term for independent worker or, or freelancer because, um, despite a lot of the, the benefits of, working for yourself and and being your own boss, there are a lot of really significant um, problems Mm -hmm. in terms of you are shouldering the the burden for training and employees and insurance and benefits. And, you know, it essentially um, being your own boss means everything falls on you. And so it's an incredibly risky endeavor. Um, so that's where we think that's where we see the way um, traditional markers of capital and, and class play out in terms of, um, you know, who can afford to be an entrepreneur and, and who can afford to kind of take the risk and, and go out on their own and, and launch their own startup venture. Um, but, but gender also plays such a significant role in that if we think of the, the prototypical entrepreneur, especially in American culture, it's, it's a male business person, often a, you know, um, a white educated male. And so, um, a lot of the, the traits that are associated with, entrepreneurship, um, you know, including, um, independence and, and risk and, and even the term bossiness. Um, these are traditionally male masculine traits. And so, you know, how does female entrepreneurship get translated into these contexts? And it's, as you said earlier, this kind of, you know, hashtag, boss babe or, or mompreneur. And so in all of these, you know, it's, it's rendered an inferior category of entrepreneurship. Um, and I, I did a study with one of, um, a graduate student at Temple, Ursula Propneska, and we were really interested in, you know, what does digital entrepreneurship look like for a female creative worker? And so we did, um, in-depth interviews with creative workers across um, marketing and media and um, content creation. And we were really struck by the the challenges that they had to negotiate by being female independent workers working in these highly masculine spaces where, um, you know, for instance, they had to think about, well, is it okay if I share images of my children on, on my professional Facebook site? Um, or 
you know, how can I, um, we called it kind of the soft sell promotion. So they couldn't do this sort of in your face hard sell because, um, they were, they feared that that would alienate their, their consumers and their clients. And so, um, what we found is that entrepreneurship was sort of filtered through this normative, um, femininity prism where these women faced the additional demands where they had to negotiate, you know, what it takes to be an entrepreneur with these very, um, traditional expectations of, what it's like to be a woman working in um, the contemporary moment. Yeah. You know, I was thinking this morning, um, you know, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk? Yes. Uh, yes. So his whole model of jab, 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 right hook. It's the the vision of the male entrepreneur online tends to be pretty, like, not violent, but physically assertive. The language of entrepreneurship, um, there's a whole category of people I call marketers marketing to marketers um, because that's the only way that you make money online is teaching other marketers how to make money. Um, it's not real. Like you can make money selling health stuff if you get in early to whatever the trend is. But after that, the only way to make money is to sell to other marketers. Um, but I was so interested. I was thinking about his whole jab, 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 right hook uh, philosophy and the idea that you give free stuff, give free stuff, give free stuff, and then take them by surprise and sell sell to them, essentially. Um, and I feel like for women, and again, this is, you know, it's incredibly, you know, a general statement, obviously. There is this sense that, you know, we keep jabbing, but we're never really expected to give that right hook. It's just give your stuff away for free. Yes. Um, yeah, you are spot on on that. Um, and as, as you were talking, I, of course, I'm thinking about um, the rise of all these multi-level marketing companies where, again, the, you know, the the owner at the top is a, is a male and there's, um, you know, so many women populating social media feeds with these these various products um, that are kind of positioned as sort of like a marginal entrepreneurship where, um, you know, you uh, deploy traditionally feminine soft skills um, to promote among your friends. And, you know, you engage in, you know, what we think of as emotional labor in, in these contexts. So in all these cases, it's, it's rendered as an inferior category that gets compensated a lot less. Giving your stuff away for free and getting compensated less? It's not just a violence that men perpetrate on women. It's a violence that women have learned to perpetrate on one another. Even as women encourage one another to become lady bosses and then find value in their bodies, they routinely undervalue the products and services of the women who do this work, if they can afford to pay the prices being asked in the first place. Sarah Vance, the body image coach whom we heard from several episodes ago, got frustrated with body image coaching because, at the end of the day, she was just giving away her expertise for free, per the advice of Marie Forleo and other business coaches like her. 
Well, I think it's interesting that in if we're specifically talking about body image, which really is, you know, a discussion about self-worth and the value of an individual, um, which it just really blows my mind that if that really is the base of that work, like seeing individuals value, especially when it comes to anybody who resides in a marginalized body, so women, uh, people that identify as women, um, you know, I just, it doesn't, it, it's becomes a very big clash with like what's actually occurring versus what the actual quote unquote movement uh, or belief system is about. Because if we really want to advocate and say, yeah, you know, I'm valuable and the rest of these individuals are valuable then, but people aren't living that like they're, they're not living that like the either not only the coaches, but also the people that are um, ingesting all of this stuff that are asking for it and, and not wanting to pay it, it just doesn't it's a very like, um, it, it causes a lot of friction when you sit down and critically think about that message and what's actually occurring. Um, is that like, if that's what we want to say, if we want to know our own value and we truly want to create a shift where it's like, everybody has value, blah, blah, blah. Then like, we need to be, we need, we need to live up to that. Like we need to walk that talk. We can't just talk it and then be like, I'm not going to pay anybody. You know what I mean? Yet for Brenda Swan, from whom we heard at the beginning of the episode and whose story we've been following for several episodes now, the moral she takes away from her experience is not that she was at a disadvantage from the start, that the business model she was encouraged to follow and the lifestyle she'd sought to build was exploitative, but that she had simply not done a better job of conforming to neoliberal ideals. She had not framed her business, which is to say her body, her brand, in terms of measurable economic goals. When you are a business person, as a business person, you, in order for you to be successful, you have to understand the return on your investment, right? And you need to understand, like, down to the nitty gritty what that means for you. And, and I wish I would have taken that ideology to, to what I was actually doing. Because then, because all I was doing was investing, investing, investing without knowing what my return was, without understanding it. And, and, and on top of that, without acknowledging what I was actually getting a shitty marriage, a bad relationship with my mom, fleecing my other business of all its money, you know, no actual business plan of business or, you know, whatever, uh, no actual, not nothing, <laughs> like nothing, not realizing that like, oh, when I'm putting all this free content out there, no one wants to pay for it when I want to sell it. Uh, you know, and because I have nothing else to give because I've already given it all away. We're being told to become entrepreneurs, but starting from a place of less privilege means that we're mostly becoming contractors, freelancers, or other quote-unquote inferior categories of entrepreneurs, like, say, mompreneurs, which allows us to think that we're playing with the big boys when, in reality, we end up being forced to play small. And in many ways, becoming a wellness entrepreneur is an extension of that enforcement. Brenda, previously a successful entrepreneur in her own right, felt that she couldn't be successful until she monetized her body. In the end, doing so nearly ruined her. You'd think, hearing so many women beat the quote-unquote feminist drum in the selling of their own personal brands today, that things wouldn't transpire this way. Shouldn't feminism, by its very nature, solve the problem? Well, 
As many of the original feminist theorists describe this worldview, feminism should stand in opposition to this system of inequality. Many feminists also leaned Marxist in their worldviews, searching for a more egalitarian and equitable economic and political system on which to base their critique of culture. But today, there's a new kind of feminism that has developed in response to the creep of neoliberal economic policy into our everyday lives. It has many names and manifests itself in different ways, but essentially, it's a bastardized form of feminism that eschews the basis of its economic and political philosophy to become something mainstream, relatable, and valuable in today's economic terms. Neoliberal feminism and its sisters, marketplace feminism, as defined by what you buy, and popular feminism, as defined by how you perform and brand your activism through your marketplace purchases, has changed the way we identify with and enact feminism. When I was growing up, it was still unpopular to call yourself a feminist. But today, that's not the case. Since 2012, it's actually been very popular to call yourself a feminist. In fact, if you don't publicly identify as a feminist these days, you'll get blacklisted from Hollywood and shamed off of Twitter. And while that might seem like a win, the trouble is that the definition of feminism has warped in how we use and understand it today. Andy Zeisler, the co-founder of Bitch Magazine and author of We Were Feminists Once, watched that change happen throughout her career as a maker of feminist media. I've been working, you know, in feminism and, and with feminism and creating feminist media for more than 20 years. And in that 20 years, I have learned so much and I feel like I have grown so much as a feminist, as a thinker, as someone who, uh, you know, grew up fairly privileged and didn't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the intersections that we acknowledge now most of the time. Um, and so it's been, it's been really interesting to me to see, uh, a word and a sort of social movement, a political movement, a set of values that has been consistently maligned throughout my lifespan, um, suddenly be something that people really want to embrace, um, but not necessarily because of its political or social import more because it has this kind of um, new coolness that is very much associated with what you can buy. The reason that this popular feminism has become so popular under a neoliberal framework is because it can be bought. It's a feminism that operates in marketplace terms, not one that rails against them. By conforming to the demands of neoliberalism, it's a feminism that is accessible but not radical. It asks only that you change your purchasing habits or re-examine how you valuate yourself in terms of current market rates. But it does not ask you to truly try to change the system in a meaningful way. Sarah Benet Weiser, head of the Department of Communications and professor at the London School of Economics, has studied this very same trend. Neoliberal capitalism is sort of the broad context that enables popular feminism to flourish in a particular kind of way. So, so the, 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 you know, neoliberalism is sort of notoriously hard to define and people have different understandings of it and different uses of it. But for me, in terms of thinking about feminism, there are a couple of 
I guess, characteristics of neoliberalism that are important. I think one is that it has a voracious appetite. It's always looking for new markets, right? So, um, you know, markets for the self-brand, markets for intimate relations, you know, monetizing intimate relations and so on. Um, It is also about the individual. So, uh, you know, neoliberal capitalism addresses people as consumers most of the time, right? As, and so it already has in a limitation built in to collective social action because it's about addressing people as individuals. Um, and, but the other thing about, about neoliberalism, which, which again, Catherine's book is really enlightening about is that it also welcomes a particular version of feminism. So it's not anti-feminist, right? But it is, it welcomes a version of feminism that is, um, that is about women becoming better economic subjects rather than better feminist subjects. So it's not anti-feminism. It's just, it's a particular version of feminism that is important. This bears repeating. Neoliberal feminism is about women becoming better economic subjects. So think about what people are talking about in popular feminism today. Expanding the leadership pipeline for corporate management, getting women into STEM, empowerment, influence, and self-betterment, all positioned as ways to get into higher-paying jobs or even to monetize the domestic or care work you're already doing but not getting paid for. Here's Catherine Rottenberg again. So basically, uh, in a nutshell, um, the way that I understand and the way that I use neoliberal feminism is as a variant of feminism and one that's emerged and become dominant on the Anglo-American cultural landscape, basically in the past decade or so. Um, And of course, this is a feminism that is a hyper-individualizing one. It encourages individual women to organize their life uh, in order to achieve uh, a happy work-family balance, and that's key to um, this discourse, this neoliberal feminist discourse, the idea of work-family balance. Um, and, if, and it also encourages women to perceive themselves as specks of human capital, of uh, uh, encouraging them constantly to invest in themselves and to be empowered and to be confident. And if they're not, then it's, of course, they, they only have themselves to blame. Um, so my claim in my work, what I claim is that this neoliberal feminism helps to create a new kind of feminist subject and subjectivity, um, a, a subject who is incessantly encouraged uh, to take on full responsibility for her own well-being and self-care. Um, and maybe I should say that this feminism can and does, um, and here we can think about Sheryl Sandberg, acknowledge the gendered wage gap and sexual harassment um, as signs of continued inequality. And this is what distinguishes it from what some call, uh, like Rosalind Gill and Angela McGroby, sort of the post-feminist uh, sensibility, because there is this recognition of continued inequality. But the thing is, is that the solutions that neoliberal feminism posits to these problems um, are individualized. So it's about encouraging individual women to speak out against sexual harassment and abuse. Um, and what that then does is it elides the structural undergirding of these phenomenon. So what this feminism ignores, of course, is the structural is structural sexism, is systemic misogyny, um, and of course. 
in order to root out sexism in society, uh, what we need to do is we need to um, profoundly transform institutions, policies, and cultural norms. So individual women being powered or speaking out simply doesn't cut it. So essentially, feminism, instead of helping us interrogate the economic and social structures that have undermined women's economic and social agency, has adapted itself to mirror the structures that it originally set out to critique. Popular feminism is, in essence, not empowering, even though it uses the word empowerment in pretty nearly every part of speech. Empowerment. To empower. I am empowered. Here's Andy Zeisler again. Success in a corporate world built by men for men, um, historically very uh, uninhabitable to women, um, individual women succeeding within those spaces and encouraging other women to succeed within those spaces, but not doing anything to fundamentally change the way those spaces operate. That is about, you know, that's about individual empowerment. That's not about, you know, changing the system so that more women and all kinds of women can thrive. Uh, That is a system that is still going to privilege um, women who become successful, you know, 95% of the time on the backs of other women, on the backs of the women who, you know, are their nannies and their cooks um, and their housekeepers. So that's essentially, you know, empowering individual women at the expense uh, of the empowerment of many, many more women who do not have choices, do not have privilege, and do not have, um, you know, the ability to enter <laughs> enter those, uh, you know, existing um, spaces. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that I, I, to me, this was such an obvious thing uh, when people have talked about empowerment in the past and, and sort of talked about like uh, the idea that feminism has worked because, you know, Pepsi has a female CEO or Hewlett Packard has a female CEO or a woman can run for president. Um, The idea that, the sort of exceptional woman uh, becomes synonymous with feminism is really faulty because it, it, it isn't about, um, it isn't about really thinking about liberation in a truly radical transformative way. It's thinking about, Oh, you know, if if individual women can do as well as individual men and make as much money and have as much power, um, even if they do nothing different with that power, it's still feminism. And I guess I've always been disturbed by how few uh, people publicly have really interrogated that until, you know, fairly recently. What does it mean that we're not interrogating this imbalance? It means that women identifying people are increasingly turning to hashtag feminism, to the marketplace, to commodify themselves in lieu of political activism. They're advocating for more women managers and leaders and CEOs. They're hoping to build the tech pipeline so that more individual women can get rich in an already lopsided system. They're becoming lady bosses and solopreneurs and calling their personal income a feminist victory. They're advocating for the visibility of female income, sometimes even perverting the idea of intersectionality to suggest that as long as we can see one person's individual gain, we're somehow seeing economic empowerment for an entire group of people. 
In some ways, this is why social media is so alluring, because it plays into our desire for more representation and visibility by giving us the means to make visible or to see represented our own personal path to economic gain. Sarah Benet Weiser has developed an analytic called The Economy of Visibility to explain how this impulse expresses itself in a neoliberal feminist framework. I developed this analytic uh, called The Economy of Visibility in the book. And and why I did that is because I, I'm a feminist media theorist and I've worked a lot um, and have been uh, kind of politically engaged with what lots of people call the politics of visibility, where representation and visibility is seen as sort of a route to political change or social change. So we agitate for more representation and better representation of trans people on television with the hopes that that will actually lead to something like mm, tolerance or something, you know, but the, the, the actual representation and the visibility is, is a route to the politics. And, you know, in the last decade with, uh, just the incredible, um, increase and wide reach of digital media, especially social media, what I was noticing was that, um, actually it, what we were seeing was that the visibility and representation sort of became an end in itself and it stopped being a route to politics. So, you know, a t-shirt that says, this is what a feminist looks like became the politics itself. And, and I saw that as being as something these these you know representations and these images of feminism and other things, not just feminism, as circulating in this economy um, so fast that we can barely contemplate or 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 digest any of these messages. And so um, it's it's related to the platform and the and plat- platforms on which these images circulate. It's related to what people have called platform capitalism, where things like the attention economy is what we're interested in, how many likes, how many followers, that the kind of obsession with metrics, rather than thinking about what these images and what these messages might actually mean and how to engage with them. One of the things that is characteristic um, of, I think, the contemporary capitalist climate is is about self-entrepreneurship and and about recognizing your value as a human being in terms of your economic success. And that is, if you're in a context where it's kind of ever-increasing markets, right, um, and and it's about a sort of idea of meritocracy that your merit somehow will, um, you know, allow you to rise to the top, and by that I mean be economically successful, then a human being's worth is about their economic worth. You know, so so um, this is this is sort of the the and again, Catherine writes about this extensively. But this is sort of the the premise in in this idea of lean in ideology, right? That you that women should just lean in more to um, to you know operate in the business place in the workplace as an economic subject, right? And it, so it doesn't challenge the logic of capitalism or the logic of being an economic subject at all. It doesn't ask us to think about different alternatives for our worth, such as care networks or that kind of thing. Um, instead, it really, it sort of um, reifies this idea that if we are economically successful, then we have worth as human beings. And I think that within popular feminism, that emerges or is manifest in 
um, a lot of the discourses about confidence that we see everywhere, right? So it's about telling yourself, I am confident. I am, I, you know, I am beautiful. I am confident. I can do this. You got this. And there's nothing wrong with like aspirations like that. But, but the problem is, is that by saying just like Sarah, I am confident, it doesn't challenge or ask me to think about even the social and, and, and cultural and political conditions that make me feel less confident in the first place. Right. Because it is just about it has this kind of logic, this economic logic that is about being confident in the workplace. And so I think that, again, there's nothing wrong with um, uh, with, you know, discourses of confidence. But when they focus on the individual and thus make it the individual woman's problem when she's not confident, then she's ashamed of herself or she is shamed. And so it's that it's that, um, you know, kind of Manichaean dynamic between shame and confidence that in order for you to be confident, you have to put yourself out there. And when you put yourself out there, you are most likely in this, in this climate today going to be shamed. And if you can endure, you know, (laughs) then you've made it or something. (laughs) Yeah. Which is really depressing. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it is, but it's also, it's almost ridiculous, right? In that sense. Um, that but somehow we've all bought into it right yeah um yeah i mean you even say it right shaming is a form of self-discipline can you love your body in a culture that says you should hate it um what's so interesting for me as somebody in the health world um is watching the ways in which women reproduce the same types of discourses through their instagram posts specifically Mm -hmm. so you'll look at and this was a phenomenon that started a couple of years ago now but it seems like every woman who wants to position herself as a health influencer especially if that woman is thin uh is white passing or light-skinned um or, you know, has some kind of cultural capital to begin with. Um, she'll post a picture, uh, a side-by-side picture of herself with her abs and then a side-by-side with her hunched over so that there's a fat roll, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's this idea, or like posting your before and after photo. It's like, exactly as you say, you know, one only when one asks to be shamed can they then become a digital identity, right? We build our brands on the idea of enduring this this shame. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and on this idea of transformation, right, mm-hmm. um, which is also about self-discipline. And you can see, like, the discourse and the logic of transformation everywhere, like in, in, in makeover shows and Um, and, um, and, and beauty tutorials online. I mean, like in the Instagram post post, exactly like you're saying, it's, it's that, you know, it's that we, we need to be confident enough to transform ourselves, Mm -hmm. um, in order to not be shamed for who we are. You know, it's, it's very, um, it's a very tricky dynamic that I think that gendered beings, um, feel in some, in, to some degree, most everyone, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I don't know if we had talked about this before, but my very favorite Nike ad campaign, there's a woman on the back of a spin bike and she's in the second row. And the whole thing is that, you know, she, uh, she is thin, pretty, but somehow she's not thin and pretty enough, you know? Um, and she's sitting on the back of a spin bike and, uh, she says that she's, you know, she's feeling a little bit less confident. And then all of a sudden these two women with perfect, um, butts sit in front of her. There's a strategy to where you sit in spin class. 
The middle's always safe. Unless the middle is right behind a bunch of models slash actresses. Where you'll spend the whole class staring at their model slash actress butts. Which is weirdly motivating. And essentially the idea, you know, on the surface is that you need to be motivated to be better. Right. You mm-hmm. need to be constantly working towards transformation, specifically through fitness or health or some kind of visible transformation. Right. Um, but I also saw a parallel there in the way that Nike positioned themselves as kind of teaching you how to be a good consumer as well. So mm-hmm. asking for that visual cue of what to look like to show that you've transformed, right? I hate having to see yeah. these women with perfect supermodel bodies, but at the same time, it's oddly motivating. Like, I yeah. need Nike to be positioning these women in front of me so I can become them too, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's- yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that that's that sounds sort of like a horrible um, <laughs> ad. Um, um, it reminds me too of of um, you know this this movie I feel pretty with Amy mm-hmm. Schumer, right? Which which you know has this idea that you know that she she hits her head and and so becomes befuddled and so thinks she's hot when she's clearly not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 at the end of it. You know, when when she she hits her head again and she realizes that, you know, her body is is she should love her body no matter what. The movie ends on her back and soul cycle. And 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 so I just I don't understand that logic that, you know, but but that I sometimes feel like that movie is like part of my book without the critique, you know, (laughs) you know, there's like this, this idea that, that we should, that we should always be transforming and consumerism absolutely relies on that. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. I mean, we always have to transform and we need to feel badly about ourselves because otherwise, why the hell would we spend all this money on these products? Cause you know, we need to feel badly. So they, the, you know, this is the, this sort of the way in which consumption is about a kind of therapy where buying products and other shit allows us to feel better, you know, about ourselves is, is sort of the way it works. And so, um, I see that same logic in in popular feminism. Yeah. You know, uh, you actually say that in the book, there's uh, the idea that the business of the self must be approached with an entrepreneurial spirit and that self-help is itself a form of art and retail is a form of therapy, right? Like we're, we are coming to this place where, as you say, you know, there we've increasingly normalized life coaches and love coaches and all these transformational people because we feel like they're we constantly have to be working it is the business of the self right and in a lot of ways people are now getting uh rewarded with some kind of capital whether it's financial or social because of investing in the self in this way yeah. And I think, I mean, and there's, you know, people have written really wonderful stuff about this. Arlie Hochschild wrote a book called The Outsource Self about the ways in which we, again, monetize our intimate relations and our intimate practices um, from anything from love coaches and dating coaches to wedding planners and birthday planners and all the rest of it. We're kind of outsourcing all these relational uh, activities. Um, but I also think that it's really important to make the point that that while I think that this sort of therapeutic, what, you know, Jackson Lears calls a therapeutic ethos, why that affects, you know, not just women, 
it is almost always about women's bodies. Mm -hmm. That is the source and the site of transformation. And so, um, you know, it's not about transforming necessarily her mind or, or something like that. It's about, you know, it, it kind of revolves around her body and which is why sort of one of the things, one of the, the, the sort of misogynistic responses to this emergence and, and, and more general embrace of popular feminism is often about the body, rape threats, mm -hmm. um, fat shaming, body shaming, revenge porn. You know, it's about, it's about this kind of controlling women in this way that is reducing them yet again to their bodies. Mm -hmm. And it's just so interesting that Instead of um, rebelling against that in some ways, many women, especially who follow that popular feminist ethos, choose to go the route of self-discipline, of controlling their bodies as well. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's I, I think that that's not an, uh, uh, you know, an unusual response if the way in which we are going to be valued is based on that. You know, people want to be valued. Um, I, you know, for me, feminism, the definition of feminism is about the value of women, right? It's not about equality. It's not based on some rights, you know, liberal ideology of rights. It's about valuing women um, in a particular kind of way. And so, so if we're valued in this, in, in, in a way that is about our bodies, then it makes total sense. Um, you know, that that people, women would would engage in this self-discipline that seems against their best interests. I want you to bookmark this sentiment because we're going to pick back up here next time when we discuss self-discipline and self-interest in the name of self-brand. The Your Body, Your Brand podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Kyla Tova. Dramaturgical feedback was provided by Kendall Lynch. Music for the intro was written and produced by Mackenzie Quattlebaum. Concept photography for the website, social media, and podcast cover art was taken by Reza Scott of RF Scott Imagery. To support this independent, ad-free podcast and help us develop a season two, please consider becoming a patron. Patrons who pledge $3 a month or more will get exclusive audio, including cut audio and longer, previously unreleased interviews. This week's Patreon episode is Sarah Khan. Just visit patreon.com slash bodybrandpod to become a patron today. And keep in mind that while there are only a few more episodes left in this season, there are still hours and hours of audio that will be released on Patreon even after this season ends. For show notes and links to the guests who appeared on today's episode, please visit bodybrandpod.com slash neoliberal. And if you like the podcast, why not leave us a review? Here's one from Tiffany Louise R., so happy this podcast exists. The topics that Kyla covers on this podcast are things that have been swirling around in my head for the last couple of years. Thank you for bringing this conversation to life. I have seen so many women leave their jobs or transition to fitness slash health, and it has intrigued me and also got me thinking about how sustainable it will be. As a teacher, trainer, and someone who shares on a social platform, I think this podcast brings up the conversations that need to be explored and discussed, and everyone in the fitness, health, and multi-level marketing industry needs to listen to this podcast. Look forward to this every week. Thank you so much, and I look forward to bringing this podcast to you, which is why I really hope that we'll be able to make a season two. Speaking of which, if you're a health coach, a yoga teacher, a personal trainer, or some kind of body-focused wellness entrepreneur, or if you've considered becoming one, I would still love to hear your story and potentially share it on a future podcast. Send me a text email, or better yet, record a voice memo and email it to yourbodyyourbrand at gmail.com. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I cannot wait to share the next one with you. I'll see you next week.